Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The Indians, being the prior occupants, possess the right of the soil. It cannot be taken from them unless by their free consent or by the right of conquest in case of a just war. To dispossess them on any other principle would be a gross violation of the fundamental laws of nature and of that distributive justice which is the glory of a nation. But if it should be decided on an abstract view of the question to be just, to remove by force the Indians from the territory they occupy, the finances of the United States would not admit at present of the operation. This quote came from one of Secretary of War Henry Knox's first reports to President Washington in mid-June 1789, in which he brought the new president up to speed on several issues in the United States' relations with Native Americans. While this particular statement focused more on the Native nations in the Northwest Territory, the statement provides a perfect synopsis of the Indian policy of the Washington administration with which to frame our changing gears in this episode to look further south and establish some groundwork that is important for understanding the nation's approach to Native Americans in the South over the course of American history. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Before we dive in, I'd like to give a special thanks to the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook. No matter what side of the Mason-Dixon line we're discussing, Andrew works hard to ensure that the audio comes across crisp and clear to all parts of the globe. If you, like me, can use Andrew's audio editing expertise, please reach out to him via email at andrew at foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. I'd also like to thank my husband, Alex, for providing us with the intro quote for this episode. In addition to serving as an extra set of eyes and ears, along with occasionally being drafted to provide audio contributions to the podcast, I could not do what I do without Alex's constant love and support. With that said, let's get this episode going, shall we? Before we dive into the whatnots and heretofores, let's get a basic sense of what we're talking about when we talk about the southern United States in the 1790s. At this point, it is a strictly geographic region, not a division between slave states and free states, as there are states in the North where slavery is still legal. The traditional below-the-Mason-Dixon line definition includes Maryland and Delaware, then goes south along the coast to include the states of Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. Then going west, the dividing line between North and South is the Ohio River onto the Mississippi River. As noted by historian Thomas B. Abernethy, quote, The South was half again as large as the North in area, but its southern boundary was still disputed with Spain. According to the peace treaty signed with Britain in 1783, the line between Spanish Florida and the United States was to run from the Mississippi River along the 31st parallel to the Chattahoochee River, thence south to its junction with the Flint, then in a direct line eastward to the source of the St. Mary's River, and down that stream to the sea. But Spain did not admit that Britain could grant all this territory. She, Spain, was still in possession of Natchez on the Mississippi, and she claimed all the land lying south of the Tennessee River and west of the Appalachian Mountains. Thus, the jurisdiction of the United States fell considerably short of her claims. 
We mentioned some of the conflict between the U.S. and the Spanish on the southern border in episode 1.10, so we won't touch much on that in this episode. Just know that this dispute, in part, played a role in development in what is now Mississippi, Alabama, and southern and western Georgia. What became the state of Kentucky in 1792 was a part of Virginia at the time that Washington took office, but Virginia gave its assent to the wishes of its residents to break off on their own, and on June 1, 1792, it became the 15th state of the Union. Meanwhile, territory that was ceded to the federal government by North Carolina, for the most part what would become the modern state of Tennessee, was organized into the Southwest Territory by a bill which Washington signed on May 26, 1790. The rest of what was then the southern U.S. technically remained a part of Georgia, though the reality was that most of the white settlements in Georgia hugged the Savannah River, which was the dividing line between that state and neighboring South Carolina. A key reason for this consolidation of the population was the native peoples who inhabited lands in the South. As noted by Abernathy, quote, Indians inhabited most of the country west of the mountains, with the Choctaw Nation occupying what is now southern Mississippi, the Chickasaw, northern Mississippi and Alabama, the Creek, eastern Alabama and southern and western Georgia, and the Cherokee, the western Carolinas, northern Georgia, and eastern Tennessee. In all, they probably did not number more than 60,000, but they were still capable of making serious trouble for the men who formed the spearhead of the westward-thrusting frontier. The acquisition of land had been an obsession since the founding of the Georgia colony, as noted by Harold E. Davis. Quote, Since land was the key to the colony's settlement, the government by necessity had to consider the Indians, for they claimed all lands upon which the white population proposed to settle. Georgia needed to consider most seriously the Creeks and the Cherokees, nations of such strength and propinquity that they could not be ignored. A side note before we go further. As you may have noticed in past episodes, unless it is a direct quote, I've made a conscious decision to refer to the native peoples who were in the Americas prior to European colonization as either Native Americans or Native peoples, rather than as Indians. I do this to show proper respect both for the historical peoples of whom we discuss, as well as their modern-day descendants. Likewise, unless it is in a direct quote, I intend, out of respect, to refer to the Creeks by the name by which they refer to themselves, the Muskogee. As is my standard practice, I did research the pronunciation, but I apologize if I ever make any mispronunciations. It is not intended out of disrespect, and I appreciate any guidance and insight any of you can provide should I mispronounce a word or name. Moving forward. During the Revolution, tensions between the Muskogee and the Georgians grew, as the Muskogee aligned with the British in the conflict. Following the U.S. victory, Georgians began agitating for the acquisition of new lands and held three meetings with the Muskogee between 1783 and 1786 to demand large land sessions, becoming more forceful in their approach in each negotiation. The Muskogee had no interest in giving up their land, however, and the tensions ultimately escalated into an open conflict. As noted by Kevin Kokomore, by 1787, quote, Creek warriors devastated the state burning swaths of the backcountry, emptying the profitable rice plantations along the coast, and even threatening Savannah. It was clear that Georgia needed more assistance than they were able to muster on their own to counter the threat. Good thing a new, stronger federal government was being formed. Because of their belief that the government under the Constitution would be a powerful tool in subduing the native peoples and acquiring more land for settlement, 
Georgia became the fourth state to ratify the Constitution. The reality, however, would turn out much different than the Georgians had in mind. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The new Constitution placed treaty negotiation and the management of Native American affairs with the federal government, and the Washington administration set itself to the task, as we discussed back in episode 1.7. In 1790, a Muskogee delegation led by Alexander McGillivray would conclude a treaty with the administration that would come to be known as the Treaty of New York. However, this treaty, rather than resolving the conflict, would come to be criticized by both Georgians and Muskogee. McGillivray's delegation could not speak for the entire Muskogee population in the area, as only a few leaders were represented. Meanwhile, as noted by Kokomore, quote, in Georgia, the treaty was met with an equal mix of shock and horror. In the treaty, the federal government had recognized Muskogee claims to land between the Oconee and Okmulgee rivers and south of the Altamaha River that white settlers had already begun moving on to, while also making a guarantee that the Muskogee would not be approached about further land sessions. In addition, quote, the treaty directed federal troops to the border between white settlements and Muskogee lands, and hinted at the possibility of trade arrangements that would be overseen nationally, not locally. Rather than a new tool that they could use to advance their goals, the leaders in Georgia began to feel that they were having terms imposed upon them with no consideration for their plans or needs as they saw them. Quote, The Treaty of New York clearly was not made for their benefit, and Georgians were furious. Georgian ambitions, and indeed ambitions of folks across the South, did not lay just in lands immediately adjacent to their settlements. Though the Spanish may still have been in possession of Natchez, there were other lands to the West either on or close to the Mississippi River that Georgians saw as prime for settlement. As noted by Thomas Abernathy, quote, The Walnut Hills, where the Yazoo River flows into the Mississippi, the location of modern-day Vicksburg, was not occupied even by Indians. And since it had obvious possibilities for both Indian and river trade, it offered a tempting prize to bold adventurers. One other site also afforded considerable possibilities for the Indian trade, the Muscle Shoals of the Tennessee River. Not only was it the head of navigation on that river, the headwaters of both the Yazoo and the Timbigbee lay within a few miles of it. Boats coming down the Tennessee could not navigate the shoals except when the water was high, but by a short portage, they could be transferred to the Timbigbee and floated down to the Spanish port of Mobile. To that end, the Georgia State Legislature at the end of 1789 had approved grants of large tracts of land in what is now north and central Mississippi and northwest Alabama to three companies, the Virginia Yazoo Company, the South Carolina Yazoo Company, and the Tennessee Company. These ventures crossed into international waters as some of the individuals involved in the land-grant companies were also in communication with and some openly professing their loyalty to Spain and their desire to have the western lands secede from the U.S. and form a stronger relationship with Spain. 
We touched on some of this when we discussed James Wilkinson in episode 1.7, but as the Washington administration started to get a better handle on its diplomatic efforts with Native American nations, it became increasingly apparent that they would have to police American citizens as well as firmly establish an idea of national sovereignty to bring about peace and order. As early as July 7, 1789, Secretary of War Knox was writing to Washington identifying the expansionist schemes of Americans and Spanish intrigues in the area as the greatest threats to peace in the Southwest and in Georgia. The next year, Washington issued a proclamation on August 26th, quote, warning the citizens of the United States against a violation of the treaties negotiated with Native peoples, specifically citing treaties with the Cherokee, Chickasaw, and Choctaw. No matter how many proclamations he issued, though, Washington's words would not break through the sour relations between the Georgians and the Muskogee. As noted by Kevin Kokomore, quote, Creek headmen were deeply resentful of Georgians because of their abusive approach to treaty making in the past. While the violence of Creek raids forged Georgia authorities into more or less inveterate Indian haters. As federal authorities could not count on the authorities in Georgia to keep the peace, they had to send their own forces, with three companies of 70 soldiers each being assigned in the spring of 1790 to, quote, new stations on the St. Mary's, Altamaha, and Oconee Rivers. I'll put a map on the website with the source notes for this episode, so in case you'd like to look at it for reference, go to presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Quote, from these first postings, the number of troops spread throughout the region, slowly and inconsistently at times, but there was always a federal military presence at several places along the boundary between the white settlements and Muskogee lands. By late 1792, this force, led by Henry Gaither, had expanded to 300 troops, quote, making Gaither's command one of the largest to exist in any region not actually at war. Meanwhile, plans for the land-grant companies continued as if nothing had changed. They organized themselves and made plans to launch expeditions into the lands they wished to settle, as well as reached out to various Native Americans in the area to establish relations. However, one thing after another disrupted each company's efforts. The Tennessee Company would prove to be the first to make a move towards settlement on March 26, 1791, with Zachariah Cox, one of the company's proprietors, setting off with his partners and 29 other potential settlers from the mouth of the French Broad River headed into the Yazoo land-grant area. The governor of the Southwest Territory, William Blount, despite his interest and early involvement in the Tennessee Company, warned Cox against this move in his capacity as a representative of the Washington administration and the federal government, and, when his advice was ignored, informed Alexander McGillivray, along with the Cherokee of the intrusion into native-held lands, quote, and recommended that they remove the intruders. McGillivray sent a force of Muskogee warriors to find Cox and his party and inform Secretary of War Knox of the action on June 1st. However, Cox and his associates would prove to be lucky, as the Muskogee did not cross their path, and they were able to obtain the consent of the Chickasaw to construct a trading post and a blockhouse on an island at Muscle Shoals. Cox would return to the Southwest Territory and attempt to organize another expedition, but Blount had him taken into custody and brought before a grand jury. The jury, however, would not indict Cox, and Cox issued an advertisement for another expedition to leave from the mouth of the French Broad in November. The Secretary of the Southwest Territory, Daniel Smith, 
took the initiative, as Governor Blount was out of the territory at the time, to issue a proclamation forbidding the Tennessee Company from setting off on any further settlement expeditions and warning citizens against participating in such schemes. Washington was informed by Knox on January 17, 1792, of reports from Cherokee leaders that the Muscle Shoals settlement scheme was still moving forward despite Washington's proclamation on the matter, with Knox asserting that, quote, there can be no doubt of the propriety of enforcing this prohibition on new settlement without it having been agreed to in treaties negotiated by the federal government. The Yazoo land schemes, however, would ultimately amount to naught, and it would be Blount that would deliver the final blow to the Muscle Shoals settlement by forcing Cox's small party to withdraw back to the Southwest Territory. Indeed, Thomas Abernathy credits Washington's administrative skill for thwarting the land companies. Rather than fighting against them, Washington had brought some of the most prominent proponents of the land settlement companies into the fold. Blount had been made territorial governor, while John Sevier and James Robinson were named as brigadier generals of the territorial militia. Quote, when Washington took Blount and Sevier into his camp, he struck a heavy blow against the Yazoo companies. The simmering tensions in modern-day Georgia would not be resolved quite so easily, however. Not only were the Georgians upset over the Treaty of New York, but increasingly larger numbers of Muskogee were expressing their unease about the treaty as their leaders had not been among the group that had gone with McGillivray to negotiate it in the first place. And there were a number of secret articles of which they were wary considering how prior treaties had not been in the natives' favor. Indeed, though the treaty labeled some lands as off-limits to white settlement, there was also Muskogee land ceded to Georgia for settlement, which angered those whose voices had not been represented at the negotiations. Clearly, something would need to be done as various Muskogee leaders were starting to reach out to Spanish authorities. Thus, James Seagrove was named as a temporary Indian agent and tasked in 1792 to work with the Muskogee to improve relations and ease tensions, while Captain Constant Freeman was appointed, quote, to act as agent of the federal government for the state of Georgia. Freeman would work to peacefully bring the Georgian authorities into the fold and keep the local militias in line, but the administration made it clear that Freeman should report back on conditions and forces on the ground and be ready, quote, to restrain the actions of Georgia citizens with force, if need be. Seagrove would hold a series of meetings with Muskogee leaders in the spring of 1792 that would serve, quote, to smooth animosities as well as build trust. But even Seagrove could not prevent more Muskogee communities, with encouragement from Spanish authorities in Florida, from rejecting the Treaty of New York in late 1792. Despite this, he would establish strong relationships with several native leaders in the region and remained optimistic that his policy of quote-unquote good treatment was resulting in quote a very favorable change in favor of the United States. The peace, however, would be broken in early 1793 as a small party of Muskogee raiders quote killed a trader and sacked a store on the St. Mary's River at a place called Trader's Hill. This was followed by scattered reports of possible raids along the St. Mary's and Altamaha rivers. Quote, and local authorities were convinced that the attacks were only the beginning of a complete Indian war. Seagrove's Muskogee allies, however, assured him that they were isolated incidents and offered to do all that they could to preserve the peace. Quote, local and state officials were of a completely different mind 
and convincing them of Creek's sincerity was all but impossible. Georgia Governor Edward Telfair emerged as the leading state-level advocate for violence, going so far as to cut off his correspondence with Seagrove and making plans to launch a preemptive attack into Muskogee lands. Though the Washington administration would send word to Telfair prohibiting the state government from taking offensive action, they realized that time was short, and Knox wrote to Seagrove proposing that he take, quote, a comprehensive journey into Creek territory to meet personally with the region's most influential men. Knox felt this to be, quote, the best way to lay the foundation for a long-term peace. This kind of a diplomatic journey, deep into native-held lands, had not been undertaken previously in the region by an Indian agent, but the administration realized that the potential crisis called for a bold move if calamity was to be thwarted. Meanwhile, before Seagrove could act, the tension was ramped up higher when David Cornell's a Muskogee messenger who was the relative of a powerful leader and on his own right was, quote, a powerful and well-liked young man in the region, was accosted by Georgia militiamen while on his way to deliver a message to Seagrove in the summer of 1793, and Cornell's, along with a young boy riding with him, were shot and executed within only a few miles from a federal outpost. After the death of Cornell's, Seagrove resolved to make his diplomatic mission and would set out in the fall from Augusta. He would be escorted into Muskogee lands by armed troops due to rumors that factions in the Georgia militia were plotting to kill him so that he could not carry out his mission. Seagrove would meet with a council at Tuckabachi that would be described as, quote, one of the largest councils ever assembled, during which he outlined what had happened in the past and put forward a plan for peace. Two white citizens had been killed at Traders Hill. Their deaths had been atoned for by the deaths of Cornell's and the Muskogee boy. No more killing was needed in order to achieve peace. But Muskogee leaders did agree to execute the principal leaders of the Traders Hill raid and, quote, to return any white prisoners along with any slaves, cattle, and other properties that had been taken in past raids. Seagrove, meanwhile, promised that the federal government would work to bring those responsible for the murder of Cornell's and the boy to justice. The Muskogee leaders agreed unanimously, and Seagrove would leave the council with various native leaders to return to Augusta to inform the Georgian government, now led by a new governor, George Matthews, of the success of their negotiations and the restoration of peace. Seagrove would write to Knox that, quote, Matthews received the Indian chiefs with kindness and I believe was fully satisfied from what they informed him of their ardent wish to live in peace with this country. And they all lived happily ever after. Right? Well, not quite, dear listener. But that part of this tale will have to wait until a later episode. For now, though, I think it important to end this episode with another point of concern moving closer to the American frontier. We discussed the fears of American slave owners resulting from what would come to be known as the Haitian Revolution back in episode 1.10. But as Southerners started looking west, they also had to be mindful of problems developing in colonies on the North American mainland. The fears of Spanish authorities in Louisiana of possible slave uprisings in the early 1790s originate with both events playing out in Saint-Domingue as well as those in France with its revolution. As noted by historian Gwendolyn Medlow Hall, quote, It is clear that the Spanish authorities feared the impact of the ideology of the French Revolution upon the slaves as well as upon the free people of African descent in Louisiana. 
their fears will be proven justified in an area known as Point Capite, just on the west side of the Mississippi River across from Baton Rouge. Large numbers of enslaved people that had been brought directly from Africa were brought to the area in the mid-1770s. And though they came from over 50 different African nations, people from the same nation or who spoke linguistically similar languages started to bond together as best they could on the estates in which they found themselves enslaved. One of the best organized of these groups was the MENA. They were so well organized, in fact, that they began to plan an uprising. In 1791, quote, the slaves involved in the Mina conspiracy met in the cabin of Juan Luis, Mina slave of the widow Provilar. The estate of Charles Provilar had been inventoried the year before, and the slave force consisted of a 60-year-old Mina woman, three Mina men, an Igbo woman, and a Creole child. Thus, the Mina conspiracy was organized from an estate whose slave force was overwhelmingly Mina. Before anything could be carried out, though, the conspirators were, quote, betrayed by an Addo slave named Venus. Venus told her Creole godmother and her father, and they then informed their master about the plans. In July 1791, quote, seven blacks and four accomplices were arrested, and troops were sent to Point Capi from nearby Baton Rouge. Oddly enough, the ringleaders of this revolt were not punished because their masters feared they would suffer financial loss were their slaves executed or sentenced to presidio duty. The age of revolutions would not be an exclusively white affair, but the possibility of a revolution of enslaved people of African descent would cause slave owners across the continent to consider their options. Some would turn to emancipation as the answer to the problem, even if they struggled to figure out the details of that course of action as it related to ensuring that they wouldn't be driving themselves into financial ruin. 1791 would be the year that Robert Carter III, one of the wealthiest slave owners in Virginia, would free all his slaves. Over 450 individuals on one single day, September 5th, by filing a deed of gift at the Northumberland District Court. It would ultimately prove to be the largest number of enslaved people ever freed by a single slave owner in American history, and thus, unfortunately, an aberration in the historic annals of the time, rather than the norm. Carter was not ruined by this mass emancipation, and, as noted by historian Andrew Levy, was not quite so different from his fellow Virginia planners in terms of his financial situation. Quote, Robert Carter was also debt-ridden, but he was also more stubborn, preferring to count every bushel of corn rather than sell his slaves down south. When the time came, he paid what debts he could pay. Then he exchanged marginal luxuries in his own life and the lives of his children, as well as the goodwill of most of his white neighbors, for the freedom of his slaves. Many slaveholders, in fact, possessed the same option. Unsurprisingly, few chose it. Others would see a policy of kinder treatment towards those enslaved as the proper measure to prevent any future disturbances. The Spanish government, following the MENA conspiracy, would put forward new regulations in 1792, quote, urging planners to provide their slaves with proper food, clothing, shelter, and working conditions, and to see that they were not mistreated. Still others, however, would see, quote, leniency as a sign of weakness which would ultimately lead to a slave insurrection. The ambitions of Southerners as they turned west would collide with those of both native peoples already in those lands and enslaved people of African descent desiring their freedom. 
These conflicts are at the heart of so much of what is to come in our journey through the history of the presidencies of the United States and resonate with events on up to the present day. I hope that this episode has proven informative and that you'll join me next time for an episode that I'd like to call The Happy Course, where we return to Philadelphia to see who Washington picks to succeed Henry Knox at the War Department, as well as to assess where things stand as the administration and the world heads into 1795. Special thanks again to Alex for providing the intro quote for this episode, as well as for, you know, that love stuff. Feel free to reach out to me with any questions, comments, or shout-outs for the awesomeness that is Robert Carter via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I'm also available on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies or on Twitter at presidencies89. In case you missed it before, sources used in this episode can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's blueberry without the e's, dot com. You can also find on there all the options to subscribe to the podcast so that you can be sure not to miss a single episode. Thank you so much for listening, and take care, dear friends. Until next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. 